Welcome to Sea of Fire Ministries with James Myers. In this series, we are observing men and women in the Bible, what we can learn from them, and observing God's constant faithfulness in the lives of His people. Today we consider Samuel, the final judge and prophet prior to the establishment of the theocratic monarchy. You can find out more about our ministry by visiting us at seaoffire.org. You can also view James's latest videos on YouTube at Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope this message serves to edify the church. Okay. So as we continue in our series, considering men and women in the Bible, and considering God's faithfulness in and through these, these people's lives, let's always remember that's our central focus, okay? The faithfulness of God in and through these people. We're going to consider Samuel. And Samuel is interesting. You, you know, when you read of Samuel's uh, judgment, you know, his judgeship and his uh, prophetic ministry, it spans a long period of time, and very little is said in that great period of time. So we're going to kind of breeze through this, uh, at least the first portions, and then we'll consider seven, chapter 7 and 8 a little bit more leading into um, the anointing of Saul, the first, essentially the first king of Israel, uh, but then obviously God deposes him of that, uh, of that role, and then he, we, he anoints uh, David. So as we continue this transition, remember we've been looking at these past weeks and through the book of Judges, through Moses' ministry, this is leading up into the kingdom, okay? Now, now Samuel is kind of the forerunner. So as much as we can see likenesses of Christ in and through his servants, we also see a likeness of John the Baptist. He, Samuel was kind of the forerunner, somewhat reluctant, as we'll see, to anoint a king. And we'll see that, so that's completely different. John the Baptist came specifically for that purpose. However, we do need to recognize that he is a forerunner. He does precede the kingdom. He is the final judge and prophet in Israel just before the kingdom, okay? And again, we are going to consider the parts of chapter 2 that we did not consider last week fairly in passing, okay? And then we'll consider chapter 3 fairly in passing when the word of the Lord does come to Samuel when he's very young, and then we'll jump to chapter 7 and 8, and I'll tell you briefly about what happened during that time period as well, okay? So let's start at chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Now we'll see in chapter 3 that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. So let's just, you know, stick this in the back of our minds, you know, in our memory bank for when we approach that, okay? But right now it says they did not know the Lord. Now these two sons are serving at the tabernacle. They are giving offerings. Now without reading through it, let me just kind of tell you what's going on here. They are defiling the sacrifice. They are defiling the tabernacle. Basically, the, the priests are given a portion of the offerings. That's how they're, that's kind of their paid. That's kind of their tithe. Every offering that's made, a portion of that is given to the priests. The fat specifically is taken off and it's a great aroma. You offer the fat and it's a great aroma to God. So the people of Israel were not allowed to eat the fat, which would be very sad to some of us who really love fat. You know, but at that time you would you would offer it specifically to God. But these priests, uh, Phineas and Hophni, but also their you know, helpers and so forth, are demanding the people to give them the offering raw. Before, before it's offered, and when they would get some pushback and say, hey, how about, you know, you at least burn the fat, let's cut the fat off and offer that to God, they basically say, give it to us or we will take it by force. So it's a tyrannical priesthood that's going on right now, okay? And we're going to consider briefly Eli's rebuke, very weak rebuke, and then the prophecy against Eli. But just to set up the background, or the backdrop, these priests are defiling the, the, the sacrifice and the place of the sacrifice, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Okay, and that's where, and they're also laying with the women that would light the, the, the lamps at the tabernacle. Remember, we've talked about women who would do that, and they're laying with them. Now, that's kind of a depiction or a reflection of these idol, idolatry services, these idolatry practices. You would, always, you would typically have prostitution involved with that, 
cult prostitutes and so forth. So they they are just this is a great defilement. This is a terrible defilement that's going on under the under the high priesthood of their father Eli. Okay, now let's jump to um, chapter or, or verse um, twenty-two. So this is the prophecy against Eli. Now Eli was very old, and what I'm going to do is just read through this very briefly. We're just going to read through this, and so pay attention to what God is telling. Eli. It's an unnamed prophet again. Let's remember that happened during the time of Samson, just preceding Samson. This unnamed prophet comes and tells the people, you know, to repent and so forth. And this man is telling Eli what's, go what's going what's to happen. So, now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the woman who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. So again, they're making the Lord's people transgress. Not only them, but since they're defiling all the sacrifices and the place of the sacrifice and the place of offerings to God, then that means that by, you know, by circumstance, they are also defiling and causing the people to trespass as well. So the sins of the leader fall, to the, fall down to the people. Okay, all right. Um, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. This is indicative. I want us to remember this as we kind of see the, the conclusion of what we're going to consider with Samuel today. Eli's two sons are wicked. He is the high priest, so he's called to, to lead the people in the Word of God, technically. We'll see. The Word of God is very scarce. Okay, So even Eli is defiling the Word of God as well, essentially. But this is the first time... You know, it's said that this is the first time he hears about this, but I, you know, I have to assume that this has happened so long that this cannot be going on without his knowledge at all. He had to have known about this, but this is a weak rebuke. He has the power to, to depose them as well, and it gets to a point, you know, even if they're your sons, if discipline won't work, then deposing them, getting them out of the role that they are not fulfilling faithfully, then it is up to him and his responsibility to depose him. But he loves his sons more than God. Let, let me put it that way, which the prophet will go into. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and man. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I, did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me. Real quickly, this is different than the linen ephod we had seen, um, we had seen with Samuel. So when you're a priest, when you're a typical priest, you would wear these linen ephods. The, the high priest has this bronze ephod with, with different jewels and stones to, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So this is specifically consecrated for that purpose. And God is just recalling him to the first call of the priesthood, to Aaron, essentially. So God is reminding him. That's what God does every time he leads the people back to repentance. Remember what I did, and this is what I'm going to do. But remember my deliverance. Remember my faithfulness. Remember my calling, which has come down to each generation, now down to you, Eli. So do you remember this? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of, of all the offerings of, of Israel, my people? So why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering? Really briefly, let's remember Christ to Paul on the road to Damascus. Why do you kick against the goads? Why do you kick against that which is obviously, you know, not meant to be kick again, kicked against? Why do you kick against my sacrifice? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, 
For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That is the verse for our service, for our next um, session. Okay, that is the verse. Okay, so we'll get into that. Um, Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God, which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But, uh, but any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come, to, come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day thou shalt die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in, what is in my heart and in my mind. Now that is definitely talking about Samuel, but let's remember that, 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 that what, what prefigures Christ still applies specifically to this time. So he's going to raise up a faithful priest, that's Samuel, but ultimately it's Christ. He is the, the faithful one that will serve. Um, I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Again, the anointed is the king, but also Christ. Literally, Christos, Messiah, is anointed, the anointed one. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please, put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Real quickly, we will see Hophni and Phinehas die shortly after we... Look at chapter 3 fairly briefly, and I give you that account of the Philistines capturing the Ark of the Covenant. However, at, at this time, there is another man, Abiathar. Abi, Abi, Abi anyway, uh, he's going to be slain during this uh, reign of Solomon. So this has a progression. This, this, this judgment will take some time to actually fulfill. Hophni and Phinehas are going to perish fairly soon. Okay, now let's go to chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. So in other words, again, this is the, typically the problem of the decline of the people. The word of God is scarce. There's nobody faithfully preaching it, and there's nobody who really wants to receive it. Very few anyway. And again, the word of, the, the word of God is what sustains his people. It's what strengthens his people. It's what, it's what maintains his people. It's what keeps his people in him and to him and close by forever. So the word of, the, the word of God must never be scarce. It must be the, our, central, you know, our central place, our central, our central means by which to glorify and even know who God is. But right now it's scarce. Um, and it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. There's a lot there. There's a lot there that you can, you can, you can spiritualize, but, you know, Eli's eyes are growing dim. That's to signify that the people and, and Eli's, Spiritual sight is growing dim. His faithfulness is growing dim. His relationship to God is growing dim. His understanding is growing dim. And that's a judgment of God. Let, let's, let's be clear, okay? When, when, when the Word of God is ignored, when, when this high priest, who shouldn't be ignoring the Word of God, if that's what he wants, we need to be careful sometimes of what we ask for, or what we pray for, or what we want. Sometimes God's judgment is to give it over to us. Sometimes the worst thing is not to hear no, it's to hear yes, and he acquiesces and he lets us have it. That's what is going on with Eli. Never forget that. That is an important lesson. Be careful. One cute little, my you know, Sarah, my wife, used to pray for patience. And I told her, be careful when you pray for these things, because what he will do is give you many, many opportunities to exercise patience. You know, it's not like he just you know, waves his magic wand, and voila, you have patience. Pray for his spirit. Pray for his boldness. Pray for his testimony. Pray for his understanding. Pray for his wisdom. Pray for his peace, and you will thereby have patience. These, those are fruits. These are fruits of being with God. So you pray for God's presence. Patience will come 
thereby. Okay. <clears throat> so, oh, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle. So this means that this is during the evening. However, again, this is to signify the lamp of the, the, lamp of the tabernacle, or the lamp of worship is growing dim. But before it goes out, God calls Samuel. Okay. And he answered. So the Lord called Samuel and he answered, here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lie down. And lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. He answered, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. So he's ministering before God. And yet the word of the Lord hasn't been revealed to him. Let's, let's, so he does love Yahweh in this respect. You know, God has granted his mother a son and he knows that's his calling, but he does not yet know the word of the Lord because the word of the Lord is very scarce. So he did not yet know the Lord. He's very young. He's very young. So there's a, there's a gradation of sorts. And I can, I can empathize with this. I can, I can kind of see this in a different way in my own walk. But, you know, the more you mature in your own walk, you'll see the revelation of God, if you remain in him, will increase as the years go by. God does not stay stagnant with his people. He manifests himself more and more throughout your life. There are times of darkness and again, he's, his abiding hand is throughout. His light is throughout, even though when our eyes are too dim to see that, such as Eli's. Okay, so Samuel, okay. Uh, now the Lord came and stood and called us at other times, Samuel, Samuel, so two times. Oh, I'm sorry. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, Eli, this is interesting. Eli perceived. Now his eyes are growing dim. And, and, you know, after a few times, finally, he understands that God is calling Samuel. He remembers Hannah, okay? And he remembers what, why God granted her a son. So he, he perceived that it was the Lord. So he tells his young, um, you know, protege <laughs> that, that when, when you hear it again, say, speak, Lord. For your servant hears. This is what the prophets would say. Whenever God calls to you, this is what you say. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I'm listening. Speak. I'm ready to hear you. And this, this is what he does. Now the Lord came and stood and called, called us at other times. Samuel, Samuel. Again, remember in the burning bush. Moses, Moses. He does this throughout. Paul, Paul, or really Saul, Saul at that time. He, this is done throughout the Bible many, many different times to emphasize, really to emphasize. Remember when we talked about the trifold holy, when, we're, when God is being worshipped, holy, holy, holy. The repetition is to emphasize the holiness. It's to emphasize his call to these people. But the call, repetition, you also see this in the po poems of, of the Old Covenant, of, of the Old Testament. The, the structure is, is kind of like that. They'll, they'll say one thing and they'll, they'll, then they'll basically repeat it another time. The repetition just emphasizes what's being said. So again, the holy, 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 three times. It, again, God's holiness is, is perfect and is completely separate from anything else we can understand. Okay, and Samuel answered, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel of which both the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I just think that's funny, just because why does it say which both ears of everyone will tingle? You know, wouldn't just be one, are there people with just one ear? Anyway, I just think it's kind of funny. Uh, in that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. See? See? Even though that rebuke, he did not restrain them. He didn't go so far as to actually stopping them. He just said, hey, who's going to intercede if you, if you offend God, basically? And then he just left them to continue doing their defile, defiled work. Okay? And so... And he did not restrain them. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So in other words, this is done. 
He, God has given him chance after chance after chance to repent and change this, and he has not, so he's given him over to what he wants. He's given Eli over to what he wants. He loves his sons more? Fine. Have your sons. This will no longer be atoned for. It's too late. This is going down. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Let's recognize Samuel's heart here. He, he's been serving under Eli this whole time. He trusts Eli. He doesn't know, you know, necessarily. You know, he sees his, the, Eli's sons defiling the sacrifice in the, in the tabernacle, but he doesn't see Eli as, as a great problem. So, again, being under Eli, he's probably lying in bed, just trying to stay in bed for as long as he possibly can. Try to avoid this confrontation for as long as he can. It even says, um, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Not because he was afraid of Eli, just because this is terrible news. This is terrible news that he doesn't want to share with Eli. But then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he answered, here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. Eli knows. Eli knows that since the Lord came to Samuel, it's about him. He had already been prophesied against from the prophet, the unnamed prophet. He knows something was told to Samuel. So he says, Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. This is not a faithful response. Many people, look, you know, there is a degree to which the will, be, the will of the Lord be done. You know, that, that should be the character of all of God's people. However, he is so indifferent. He still isn't seeking God after this. Let's remember last week we made that a point. He has so many occasions, so many reasons to, to petition God, and he doesn't. Here's a great time. You know, even God, if God says it's too late, hey, while you're still alive, try. And he doesn't. He says, so let it be. So let it be. Weak faith. Weak sight. Weak man. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. That's key. He let none of his words fall to the ground. In all of, his, all of his life, basically, all of his judgeship, he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Okay, so chapters 4 through 6, basically... The, the Philistines come up against Israel, and, and they defeat Israel at first, okay? And the Israelites are kind of like, well, what's up with that? Where was God in that? And so what they decide to do is take the Ark of the Covenant. They're making this, this object that's, that's meant to symbolize the presence of God, and literally where His glory would come down. However, they think this object is God Himself, so they don't, they don't petition God either. They don't pray to God. It doesn't say anything about praying to God. They say, let's take the Ark of the Covenant. And they do. Hophni and Phinehas are the ones who are allowed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. So they take it down to the battle. And once they take it down, the camp shouts. They give this great shout. They're all excited. And the Philistines start to get scared. They start to get scared. And they're, they're, because this has happened, right? This has happened. So they think, Israel's God is back now. You know, now it's time to, to run. But... But they're encouraged. They, uh, somebody, somebody basically says, take heart, take heart, stand your ground, and let's fight. And they do. And the Israelites are defeated. By overwhelmingly defeated. And Hophni and Phinehas are both killed during this time. Killed on the same day, just like God had said. Now, once the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant... God sends many plagues. They put it in their temple of Dagon. They come up and they wake up the next morning. Dagon's on his face. The God is on his face and the ark of, ark of the Lord is still there. And so they restore him. They put him back up. Then the next day they come back and he's on his face and broken. His head is broken. God is judging the, the God to these people. That basically means the God of Israel is more powerful than our God. We need to get rid of him. 
So we need to, so we can, you know, build back up our God. And so that's what they do. They decide, let's just, let's move this to another area first. And then God sends boils on these people. And then they say, okay, we, we need to send this back. But how do we send this back? None of us are allowed to touch it. If we touch it, we die. So how are we supposed to send this back? And they get one of their priests. Priest says, you know, give an offering of the, of the Lord. Build a cart. Get a couple cows and build a cart and put the Ark of the Covenant on there. Fill it with golden rats and tumors. These are The tumors were one of the plagues. Rats were two. So these golden rats and golden um, uh, tumors which will be which they put in the Ark of the Covenant and continue and remained in the Ark of the Covenant. Anyway, so they put him on the cattle, and and basically they say if he if it's, if they start heading back to you know Israel, then fine, we'll we'll let it go. But if it turns the other way, then we'll know this is nothing. This is just an odd coincidence. But the, so that's what they do, and the cows go and they go straight, straight into Israel neither going to the left hand or the right hand of the path. Interestingly, the cows are more faithful than any of God's people. We always stray to the left or to the right, ever so slightly or ever so greatly. Cows, these cows do not. These cows do not. Now God has called them for this purpose. He has made them for this purpose. And this is what they do. Now once they, once they arrive in Israel, Israel uses the cart to burn the cows as an offering to God. And, but basically, they start running into trouble. Okay? And so then they ask for, for these men of, uh, what is it called? Kiriam, uh, Kirjath, uh, Jerim. And, so, and then they take it, and then uh, they, they anoint a, a man named Eleazar to consecrate it, to keep it, to hold it. And that's what happens for 20 years. So, if we turn to, let's jump to chapter 7, the first verse. Then the men of Kirjath, Jerim, uh, came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So, that's exactly what happens. So, he's going to keep the ark of the Lord. He's consecrating it. So, it was that the ark, of, that the ark remained in Kirjath, Jerim, a long time. It was there 20 years. It's a good amount of time. It's... It's like half a generation. It's really a generation, if you think about it. It's kind of a generation. Let's remember, let's look at, the Bible literally talks about these things and these year sequences to kind of give us an idea of these generational time lapses. So for, you know, for all of somebody's life up to this time, it was in this place, okay? And that's going to play a part in the next verse. Um, and, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So... All of this 20 years, all of this 20 years, it is not where it should be. It's not in the tabernacle. It's not where it should be. And we'll see that they are continually worshiping these other gods. Finally, something happens after this 20 years. It's not mentioned. Something happens, wakes them up, wakes them up, and they're lamenting before God. They are finally contrite. They are ready to repent. Okay. After that 20 years, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. If you want to learn about Baal and the asterisk poles, I mean, just look at a Bible dictionary, look at a concordance there, you know. And so I'm just going to spare you some of those details. There are a lot of different details, so you can study that on your own. However, again, Samuel is saying, if you, are if you are truly coming with all your hearts, put away your other gods. Put away your other gods. God does not just take first place. He takes the only place. There's, there must be, again, no other gods before me. There must not be any other gods before him. In other words, in his presence anywhere at all. Period. So Samuel is saying, if you're truly turning to the Lord now, you need to put all this stuff away. You need to put all your idolatry, all your foolishness, all your blindness away and turn to the Lord, wholly to the Lord. Not partially. You cannot come to God with half your heart. You cannot come to God with 95% of your heart. We come with all of our minds, with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, or we do not come at all. Or we're not received at all. 
I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. So Samuel's making it a, making it clear. This this is there's no partiality when it comes to God. There's no partiality from God to people, and there must not be any partiality to God from people. Okay. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray the Lord for, to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mitzpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day. So this is, some, this is to indicate a purification. This is only done one other time that I saw, and it's from David, and it's for a completely different reason. Okay, but So this is what they're doing. They're consecrating. They're cleansing. It's a purification ritual. Um, uh, and they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the ch- children of Israel at Mitzvah. So again, that's a deliverance. But So they are, they are repenting. They are, they are confessing to God, We have sinned. We have sinned. Let's remember that. Okay. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. So, again, 20 years have passed. They probably, they probably remember what happened with the Ark of the Covenant, but 20 years have passed. And these people are meeting in Mitzvah, so it seems to them that they're probably gathering for a battle. So they're going to go meet them out for battle. The Philistines, the Lord of the Philistines makes this happen, so the Philistines go out. Um, and when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Their heart is starting to be enlightened. They know it's not the ark of God. They know it's God himself alone who will save them. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole, whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Remember, that's what Hannah had prayed. She had even mentioned that the the Lord will thunder against his enemies. And it happens right here. happens a little over 20 years later. Let's remember Hannah's prayer. When you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, you read through the account of Israel, many of these things come back. But this happens shortly. Well, relatively shortly. A few pages for us, anyway. (laughs) But, But a few decades, anyway. Close to a few decades later. So, upon this Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. So they didn't even fight. They didn't even fight. And the men of Israel went out, went out of Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. We don't know where that is. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now, again, he's, he's, he's setting up a memorial stone. Now, when he says, um, thus far the Lord has helped us, it's better translated up to this point. You know, God has, been, God has helped us this entire time. God has helped us until now. Even when he judges us, even when he does de- you know, hand, deliver us into the hand of an enemy, that is for our good. So God has helped us even to this point. Don't forget that. Don't let your circumstances think that God is absent. Make you think that God is absent. Sometimes the circumstances is to bring you back to himself. Sometimes it's to refine you. But never assume that God is not present just because you're going through some bad circumstance, some terrible ordeal. Okay, God is ever present. God has been our help even until now. And so the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. The Philistines will come back, and this is just talking about this specific time. So they are not going to bother them again for now. Philistines are a perpetual enemy of Israel, but for now, they they were subdued. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. There will not be an Israelite battle lost until Samuel dies. In chapter 31, the Israelites lose, and that's shortly after Samuel's death. So, the whole life of Samuel, the, the people of Israel, are delivered by God. In any battle, okay. Um, okay. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Beth- Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzvah, and judged Israel in all those places. 
but he all but he always returned to Ramah for his home was there. Remember, that's where he was born. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, real quickly, this this is a very close knit location. Most of these areas are about about fifteen miles away. So this just suggests to us again, you know, when we were looking at the judgeships of those other play, of the other judges, it was a more local ordeal. It was all local. I mean, you would call the nation to yourself, but it would only be a certain amount of tribes, but it'd be a local judgeship. And his was very local as well. Again, reached out to all of Israel, but it took place in a very defined and fairly small area. Chapter 8. This, this is where Israel demands a king. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. We have not seen that before. This is indicative of Samuel, okay? Look, I think Samuel was a wonderful judge, but we don't have much of who Samuel was except for what we have in the Bible. No judge, no judge was supposed to continue in perpetuity through, through uh, uh, genealogy. In other words, this was not meant to pass down to the son. When a judge was called, he was called by God. And again, this is, again, let me just say, when, when a man is called to the ministry, that does not mean necessarily that his sons are called as well. The calling of God is specific to whomever. It's not a genealogical deal. So Samuel is already exercising the practice of a king. Okay, He's, he's passing over his, his role, his, his job, his calling over to those whom God has not called for this purpose. Now, he can, he can set them up as priests, and that's fine, but it doesn't say that he, that he uh, made his sons priests over Israel. That would be fine. He's the high priest at that time, that, just like Eli called his sons and made his sons uh, priests. You know, he could have done that, but he made them judges. That is, not, that is not for Samuel to decide. Okay. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. Now, Joel means the Lord is, the God is with us. Abijah means God is my father which is very interesting. They were judges in Beersheba. But his, so this is further away from Ramah. So it could very well be that Samuel, you know, isn't just close enough to see what his sons are up to. But either way, we'll, let's just, let's continue. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice, unlike their father. Now, Samuel never did these things, but again, the, the, unfortunately, I've known people who have been raised up under a minister, under a pastor, under, and their children do not follow the Lord. Um, it, you know, Paul talks about even elders being called, deacons being called. They must be able to rule over the house. Otherwise, they're not, they're not meant to be leaders over anybody. If you can't lead your house, if you can't be ahead of your household well and respectfully and honorably, then you must not, you cannot lead anybody else. But the, the, this has happened, sadly, far too often, where under the ministry, you know, under a minister, a child of a minister, gets lost. Gets lost. The minister focuses so much on, on the church, and, that, and that's great. But the church, the man's first church is his home. Never forget that. Never forget that. No matter who you come under, no matter who you become, your first church, your first congregation is your family, is your wife and your children before any other man or woman. Now Samuel, even Samuel, did not exercise that. So again, what I, what, 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 we, what I wanted to emphasize last week with Hannah and considering Deborah and these great women, these wonderful mothers, the tendencies of the fathers is not to, is not to pass on. Remember when they passed through the Red Sea, the Passover. The Passover is meant for the father to tell the, the eldest son what went down. What would happen? What happened to, to preach the word of the Lord to their sons? That was very scarce in that day, including, sadly, with Samuel. Now look, you can't force down the throat of anybody, including your sons. But you can, and you must, 
direct them and show them the ways of the Lord and pray God that they follow. Okay? But the fact that both of them weren't as terrible, apparently, as Phineas and Hophni, still, they're bad enough still. They're taking bribes. They're perverting the ways of the Lord. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, it's really nice, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like, the, like, okay, like all the nations. Now, make us a king. To set up a king wouldn't necessarily be a sin in and of itself. Like, like we've mentioned, Moses even knew they were going to ask for a king. This, this is leading up to everybody kind of knows that a king is eventually coming. Okay? So it wouldn't necessarily be a sin to ask for a king. What is a sin is to make us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. This is the reason we want a king. We don't want a faithful king to judge over us so that we can walk in the ways of the Lord. We just want to be like all the other nations. You know, we want, we want to make sure that somebody's always present. You know, we're tired of these, these 40 years or 20 years, and then, you know, God delivers us into the hand of our enemies, and then we have to repent, and then he brings out a deliverer. We're kind of tired of that. Why don't, why don't we just have a perpetual king, a perpetual judge, all the time, just like all the other nations. The other nations don't have these problems. That's because the other nations don't have God. Okay? But they, they continue. They, they always want to be like everybody else, just like the church. Just like the people of God always, have always had the tendency to be. They always want something else. They want the next greater thing. Or they want to bring in something from another place that has no place in the church. That has been the testimony of the church. That has been the testimony of the people of God throughout time. And that is what they're doing. Set, us, set, set up a king so we can be like all the other nations. That's all. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also." So in other words, God is saying, first of all, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. I know you're taking this personally. Like Maybe you're, you've judged this whole time, your whole life, and now you think that they're rejecting you. No, they're rejecting me. I am their king. However, everything that I've suffered, everything that the people have been doing since I delivered them up out of Egypt, now they're doing to you. You like how that feels? How do you, how do you like it, Samuel? So wake up. This isn't against you. Don't take this personally. This has nothing to do with you. It has to do with me, God. It has to do with God. It doesn't have to do with a man. It has to do with God. These people are asking for a king to be like all the other nations. That's not reflective of their disdain for Samuel. That's reflective of their disdain of God and his kingdom. So Samuel told all the words to, of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and, and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over, over his thousands and captains over his fifties, uh, and will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So... He, Samuel's saying, you want a king? You want a king like all the other nations? You've had God. You have the, you've had the faithful king reigning over you this whole time. You want a king? This is what the king is going to do. He's going to take all your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your stuff. He's going to take a tenth of some of the stuff, which is only meant to be given over to the tabernacle and the, and the things of God, not to this king. So this king is, is, is levying an, a heavier tax burden. The people are called to give a tenth of everything that they have over to God, not over to some man. But the king is going to demand taxation. And then he's also going to take your sons and your daughters and make them fight. Your sons, they're going to, he's going to make them fight in war. He's going to take your daughters and make them perfumers. Take them out of your household. Make them perfumers. Make them bakers. Make them cooks. All this kind of stuff. 
The men will lead chariots, they will be horsemen, they will serve before the king. But he is going to take your children, he is going to take your stuff, he is going to take your livestock, he is going to take everything. This king is going to take. You had a king who gave, who gave himself, who continued to give and continued to bless you. And now you ask for another. Again, be careful, beware of what you ask for. These people ask for a king. God says yes. Remember Gideon. They had asked the same thing of Gideon. And Gideon had said, no, no, I will not rule over you. God is our king. God is our king. Then he acted like a king. And then his son very much acted like a king. However, God is the king. God is, even over the, uh, the monarchy, that's why it's a theocratic monarchy. God is still the king. We'll see through David, because David is the only one after God's own, God's own heart. And he's not perfect, as we well know. However, he sees God as, as the king. So basically, David's job is to be God's king over the people, but ultimately only under the headship and the rule of God himself. That's what these priests should have been. That's what, these, that's what Samuel was and what these deliverers were. But he, he lost sight of it too. And he wanted to you know, anoint his sons as judges, which was not his call. So he's going to take everything. And when he does this, you will cry out in that day. And the Lord won't hear you. This is what you wanted. This is what you wanted. This is what you're getting. And you're going to cry out in that day. The Lord won't hear you. The kingdom will be perpetual until the captivity. There's a decline, a continual decline until the captivity. So he doesn't hear them until they're taken captive and then they're brought back. But ultimately, God is, God is acquiescing, acquiescing to their request. You want a king? Here's a king. He's going to do all these things. And in that day, you will cry out to me and I won't hear. I won't hear. This is what you wanted. Don't forget, this is what you wanted. God is not unjust, okay? God is merciful, even teaching us our own hearts through this. So again, even when God says no, so I will not hear it, that's because of his mercy, out of his judgment through mercy. Let us never forget that. Let us never forget that he is not some mean tyrant up there just waiting and wanting to punish us. He disciplines us. He reproves us. He spares not the rod, as we've been talking about. Okay. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, "No, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be that may that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles." That's what they want. That's what they want. They think as long as they have a king to fight all their, all their battles, they're fine. They had God, and so long as they were, they were faithful and seeking after God, God continued to deliver them out of their battles. Now they want a king. They want some man to do it. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to a city. We will stop there. I want, you know, so your reading assignment for this week is chapters 9 through 15. Because this, and we'll see more of Saul, you know, this isn't, this isn't the end of Samuel. Okay, so that's why we're going to end it here. We'll see him, you know, throughout Saul's king, kingship, uh, anointing David. I mean, next week we'll see, God willing, we will see him anointing Saul. Saul's called uh, to be a king. He's very humble at first. Um, and then he grows to be wicked. But we'll consider 9 through 15, because then once we even jump to David, we'll see Saul in the life of David as well. So, God willing, we will reach there. So, Samuel, let's remember, let's remember, as we go into the, the inauguration of the kingdom, through, a, through one who falls, let me put it that way, Saul, Saul is called, I believe, as a judgment, uh, because he will fall away just before David. And let's just remember the tendencies, the tendencies of the people we've seen throughout leading up into the kingdom. And I'm just going to re-emphasize this every time we, we consider this, especially as we consider the kingdoms through until the captivity and then the restoration out of the captivity. 
that people are t tend to decline, ascend for a time, decline, ascend for a time, decline. But the it's like, you know, they're up here, then they'll decline, and then they'll ascend right here, then they'll decline, and then they'll ascend right here, then they'll decline. And that's just kind of the perpe perpetual decline of the people until Christ comes. And it has been the perpetual ascension and decline of his church until he returns. Okay? But, but let's, also, let's remember that these people saw the ark of the Lord as the Lord himself. There are many different ceremonies and objects by which we do this, we have the same tendencies. You know, we think, if we hold our breath past the cemetery, these super, silly little superstitions, you know, we think if we wear a cross or something of that effect, like we're filled with God or something, or he wards off any of the dangers, it's not the cross, it's not this cross, it's not this cross that keeps me saved, it's the cross of Christ. It's this cross that reminds me. It's this cross that I bear on my body because he bore on his body what he has given over to us. It's a constant reminder that this does nothing. This has no power. The power is Christ. It's in Christ. Not, not any of these silly little objects. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is a wonderful supper of remembrance of our Lord. And that's all it is. The bread has no power. The wine has no power. It's merely bread and wine to point us to our Savior. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. The glory of God came down in a cloud. You know? It, and it's wonderful. The, the, there, there are these physical objects that God even places up to point toward Him, not to be Him. So let's be careful of that same tendency as well. There's a lot to be to be aware of, okay? Briefly, I do did want to conclude this with saying, you know, every week we've been coming together, you know, for a while now, and we consider God, who we can't see, who we can't hear, He's invisible, and so sometimes the inclination is to think He's not there. He's not as real as, you know, like, I can't speak to him and hear him audibly like I can any other man. And I just briefly want to <laughs> encourage us and to remind us, not everything we know and learn is by the testimony of other men. And My love for my wife, nobody had to convince me, nobody had to preach to me, nobody had to evangelize to me and tell me, hey, you love your wife, so you ought to marry her. My love was immaterial. It wasn't imagined, it's not imagined, but it is immaterial. I know I love her. That's not because somebody had to tell me. That's not because love itself had to come down incarnate and tell me, hey, love your wife. There are many things that we know that are impersonal. That they don't require some, that thing to tell us. Okay? So let's, let's just realize that the reality <laughs> is more than just what we see with our eyes. That's my point. That's my point. Just like faith is not by sight, but it's by the Word of God. Same thing. Same, it's a similar deal. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Praise God. Thank you for listening to Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope and pray this has blessed you in your walk with God, and we hope you join us again next week. You have been listening to Sea of Fire Ministries, where the Word of God is life.